All right, Ingram Smith here to do a uh, a lighthearted, unique, unorthodox instant reaction podcast. So, um, thank you to all our sponsors who make the Nolcast uh, possible. Obviously, Louisiana Hot Sauce is our title sponsor. Madison Social, uh, great people there in in College Town. The legendary team of Chad and Shannon uh, in the home loans uh, that they've provided so many of our listeners and services that they provided so many of our listeners. Uh, the good people congruity. We're, we're very fortunate to have the team that we do behind us. So I thought this morning was hilarious. I mean, <laughs> for a year that I have not been able to laugh a whole lot at some of the things going on in college football and just enjoy the general absurdity that is college football at time, I don't know that I've enjoyed 9.30, the hours of, you know, the 60 minutes that made up 9.30 to 10.30 this morning in a long, long time. I mean, it was... Uh, it was very funny to me <laughs> for, a, you know, in kind of a, uh, a less than, than perfect example of congruency. There was, uh, there was a feeling of kind of 2014 out there that, like, you know, college, some of those who, uh, who enjoy social media and, and have a Florida State perspective or background were, you know, none too concerned as to what the <laughs> broader college football world uh, thought of the situation or uh, certainly not going to have the you know the morality police of Clemson uh, swing by our neighborhood and, and teach us right from wrong and obviously I've been joking about this for I don't know four months five months six months however long it's been it's been a while um, and it's not gonna break my heart that this game didn't get played and for all intents and purposes is not going to get played but I think it's worth acknowledging that Florida State didn't want this game to be canceled. I mean, Florida State needs every dime it can collect right now. Uh, Florida State, as much as I can laugh about it, you also got to acknowledge the real dire situation that exists with Florida State athletics and and the financial concerns tied to it. And, and they need every source of revenue that they can get. Um, and a, a college football game, even a college football game that you're likely to take a whooping is an attractive source of revenue for them right now. So the idea that Florida State ran from Clemson is hilarious. I mean, the idea that Florida State could take any more of a beating this year from a PR perspective, uh, that ship sailed, bro. <laughs> nothing, nothing that Clemson was going to do on the field today, uh, was going to paint the light uh, or paint the picture of this program in any different light. So, uh, don't don't you worry about that Clemson fan or anybody else uh, that thought maybe entertain that idea. You know, it's like I said, they need every ticket they can sell. Um, as far as a booster perspective, I mean, we all we all know who owns College Town. We we all know who does well when the tenants in those spaces do well, and those tenants, you know, they make. Uh, there's a lot of slow times in Tallahassee, and when there's money to be made, they got to make them. And, and football games are, are those type of weekends, and even football games with, uh, you know, less than maximum attendance is a, a chance for people to get the books right. And uh, every time something like that doesn't happen, it's, you know, just worth having in the back of your head. There's going to be consequences there. And Florida State, you know, people who earn between fifty and eighty thousand dollars are frequently the people that make a organization successful. And every time Florida State hits a bump in the road right now, um, unfortunately, the idea that some of those people are going to be able to be retained is uh, is probably impacted. So, um, you know, I, I just want to point out. I, I know that I've laughed about this idea, and this has been kind of an ongoing thing for half a year for me. 
there, there's very real consequences when something like this happens. Uh, so, um, you know, the idea that Florida State didn't want to play this game is uh, laughable, and the idea that Florida State is the bad guy here when Clemson had a symptomatic player practice, get on a plane evidently, and then get on a bus uh, who later tested positive, and somehow it's Florida State's fault that this game didn't get played. Uh, I try not to be, you know, no, anybody that's listened to this podcast for a while knows that we're certainly not uh, PR and we don't <laughs> pump out, uh, you know, propaganda for the state here. Uh, but it's laughable, the takes that, that some of the blue check marks that I saw out there take today. And, uh, you know, some who, who chose to further push this narrative that Florida State, you know, didn't aggressively want to play this game. And uh, to an extent, uh, the ACC conference bears some responsibility for that. I know there's got to be some clarity there from them, and um, maybe a lack of leadership this morning from my perspective and and some others in Tallahassee. Uh, like I said at the beginning, I don't you know expression my grandmother used to all the time used to use all the time was a snowball chance in hell, and that's what I would give <laughs> the idea that Florida State and Clemson are going to play on December twelfth. Doubt it, doubt it, doubt it. You're going to have to look for next year. And when you do get an idea on next year, uh, for those of you who who love to uh, have a vested interest, an extra vested interest in a sports game, you know, if the line's not ridiculous, I would certainly consider uh, looking at Clemson the points and know that Dabo is, uh, you know, not that he's not going to try to find every morsel of motivation and everything else otherwise, but... Um, you know that that may be a game that you could get some get some extra action on or extra action in at the end of the game that helps uh, make sure that that Clemson ultimately covers whatever number that is out there. Final point here on uh, on today's happenings is like <laughs> I've lost all respect for Florida State University. <laughs> Okay, okay, Clemson fan. Uh, just the stuff that I saw on social media. Absolute absurd. Everybody's got people on social media who say uh, silly things, but I just, God, I had a good time laughing at that today. And, uh, you know, we're not always, Florida State's not always going to be in the situation that it is right now. And it's not always going to look up at, at Clemson up on this hill. And, um, you know, maybe today's an, another day that kind of, weaves these two schools uh, as as a rivalry and, and adds a little bit of spice to, uh, uh, you know, to to certainly the two premier uh, football schools in the conference. And, and Clemson's having their day right now, and we certainly tip our hat to them. Uh, but, you know, maybe this added some kind of layer or, or texture to uh, a rivalry that as long as these two schools are in the conference they're in, uh, are always going to be kind of judged against each other, and uh, we'll look at each other for their first uh, source of competition uh, from, a, from a conference perspective. Um, obviously, that's assuming that Florida State ultimately gets its house in order and, uh, you know, kind of plays to the back of their baseball card uh, when it comes over the last 30 or 40 years. And um, we certainly think that that will happen at some point in time, but it may be a, you know, maybe a three to five year process before that takes place. So I just wanted to get on here, have a laugh about what happened today, have a laugh at some of the stuff that I've seen out there that like Mike Norvell hasn't lost uh, uh, Miami Clemson or Florida in year one. That's, uh, that is hilarious. And that is indicative of uh, 
of the year that has been 2020. And, you know, we'll just see. We'll see what comes out of it um, and what these final two games look like. And I, I do think that we need to cherish uh, every college football game that we see right now. It is truly a week-to-week uh, proposition with some of these numbers that are out there. Um, I do have even less optimism about a bowl season taking place or Florida State being able to take part in a bowl game. So uh, full focus from a football perspective here on these final two games. Um, I don't you know, I don't think I'm necessarily sharing how secrets to acknowledge that Jordan Travis had a hand injury today. I don't know if he would have played. I have skepticism if he would have. Uh, hopefully that's something that can get healed up uh, in time for, for Virginia. And, um, hey, look, you know, there's nothing that's going to save this year. There's nothing that's going to salvage this season. Uh, but if you get kind of a unorthodox bye week here, you're able to get people healthy and you're able to have some kind of level of focus on and on your final two games of the year, will the season still be <laughs> a massive disappointment? And, um, you know, will some in the fan base have a cause for concern from what they've seen? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, there, there is certainly value in trying to uh, show yourself as well as possible in these final two games and see what comes of it. So I am going to spend uh, a little bit of time here addressing the uh, ESPN article from earlier in the week. If you don't have an interest in that, if you're, you know, of the perspective that, all oh, that was written for an audience, uh, you know, out outside of Tallahassee or that this is a story you've heard numerous times, I'll certainly acknowledge that, give you the opportunity to uh, click off here and ask that you join us back on Monday night when uh, Bud and I will record again as we both look back on this weekend, uh, have an extra you know laugh or two about it, and then uh, kind of transition our focus to the final two games of the year. You know, in many ways, for me, I look at this as kind of the Jimbo article. Now, there's other people involved, and there's a whole wide uh, cast of characters, but um, you know, it's kind of a how we got here, and if I refer to it as like the Jimbo article or something like that, <clears throat> forgive me. Uh, I realize it's it's more complex than that, and this is a, a really interesting story that ultimately I think you know somebody will probably write a book about it. I don't know if it'll be uh, you know massively <laughs> successful or if it's just focused on the thirteen and fourteen season, but I, I think you could really write a book on the entirety of Jimbo's time. And there's, or at least, you know, maybe on the complexity of the relationship that Jimbo Fisher had with uh, his boosters, his immediate superiors, the presidents uh, of the university during his time there. And I would, if I were to write that book, I would and there's maybe three places you could start it. Hell, there's probably a hundred places you could start it, but there's three places that come to mind for me. I would probably, I think you could write it um, from the moment that Jermon Fortson is kicked off the team. Maybe Greg Reed. Uh, Fortson was kicked off the team, and it's still the same Jimbo Fisher that you read about in this article. It's just the guy hadn't won a national championship yet. The guy hasn't become you know, the character that he has in the in the college football world now. But Jimbo Fisher, uh, during the Jermon Fortson situation, uh, had kicked a kid off the team. This is actually if you, just random comment here, but this is probably the genesis of the Nolcast as well. Uh, had kicked Jermon Fortson off the team. 
and Bud and I had had a loose relationship prior to this, but I had published the news that Jermon Fortson had been dismissed from the team during Florida State's fan day or media day. I think it was fan day that day. And Bud called me and argued with me that, well, they're still trying to keep him. Well, Bud ended up both of us right. Uh, <laughs> they were still trying to keep him. Uh, he had been told by the university and accepted the fact that Fortson was dismissed from the team for a violation of team rules. And then Jim Wobe went out and told the media that I think he had his knee scoped earlier in the week and that he was just having that looked at and nothing was going on. <laughs> media day ends and, and Jimbo has to you know, hurriedly call everybody back 30 minutes later and admit, well, actually, uh, Jermon Fortson's been kicked off the team. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that I, or he didn't say this, but despite the fact that Jimbo, you know, kept pressing people uh, to try to keep him, ultimately was unsuccessful. And that's what Jimbo did. I mean, Jimbo fought (laughs) until he was told to stop and then fought more until he was told to stop and then fought more. And in that instance, he was fighting for his kid, and, and to an extent, uh, that's admirable. Almost the same, almost a, well, a very similar situation happened with Greg Reed. Uh, you could have that moment there as well, to where Fisher's told, like, okay, there's a line, <laughs> you've crossed it, and there's maybe a second line, and you're about to cross that. At, at some point, you can't you know, keep fighting with your superiors as to whether or not you're going to keep a kid. And I don't want to say Jumbo almost got fired over that. He didn't. Uh, But it was an example of him, uh, you know, pushing relationships to a point uh, to where it was tough. And when things didn't happen in Jumbo's way, Jumbo did take it personally and, you know, carried grudges and didn't forget about things. If you don't start it with those two dismissals and these are just three kind of things uh, that popped to mind for me. I might start it at <laughs> Jimbo Fisher speaking to a booster club, I think in 2011, maybe 2012, and saying something to the words of, well, when it comes to what conference Florida State's in, Florida State needs to do what's best for Florida State. That's a pretty uh, understandable statement, but that's kind of a crazy comment for a head football conf- uh, coach to make about conference realignment. Uh, to make about the you know the direction of uh, the school that he's in and and you know certainly there were some things from that statement to be taken about how Jimbo Fisher felt about ACC at the time but ultimately that whole conversation about conference realignment was about money was about securing you know a larger guaranteed annual revenue stream and concern um, but it was also a head football coach talking about a subject matter that is not that of the head football coach's decision. Um, certainly is, is inappropriate uh, for the head football coach to be driving the idea of conference realignment. And um, it's just kind of a glimpse at to uh, some of the ways that you could maybe start and begin to weave a story with Jimbo and, and how he interacted with people. Um, so as far as the article itself, I thought Adelson and Hale... I mean, look, it's, uh, I think when I printed it out today, it was like 15 pages, 9,000 something words. It's certainly exhaustive. And at the same time, you could probably write 30,000 pages on this and, and it would be, or 30,000 pages, excuse me, 30,000 words, and it would still be, you know, lacking. It's a layered, complicated subject matter. There's some of it that I thought they got right. There's some things that with perspective and, 
and pieces of the story certainly help even somebody like myself who has a decent line of information on this subject matter uh, to make sense of. So I want to I want to tip my hat to him. I'm also going to take exception with some of the things in there. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll have a little bit of a conversation about it. So uh, this whole idea, like, would Jimbo Fisher have become Bobby Bowden 2.0? Would Jimbo Fisher, you know, have been at Florida State for 25 years or something like that? <laughs> no. No, he wouldn't have been. Not in my opinion. Um, Jimbo had, you know, flirted with jobs numerous times. Um I think Jimbo Fisher would have left um, had there been more clarity of direction from LSU in a previous pursuit. And I think Jimbo Fisher was going to leave in 2017 um, to an SEC West school, ultimately. Uh, I think that the idea of him ultimately landing at Auburn has, let me just put it this way, the, the more that that idea is out there, and that I look at, I put more validity into it. You can't tell me that Jimbo Fisher would have been Bobby Bowden 2.0 or wanted to be Bobby Bowden 2.0 and then <laughs> uh, pair that with his with his actions. And this isn't all, uh, I'm just going to sit here and bash Jimbo. Look, man, Jimbo Fisher took a program that for all the financial concerns that we talk about right now, maybe they weren't as exasperated as then. But in 2010, there was a real honest conversation of does Florida State have the resources together to marshal them, to channel them in a direction to be elite again? And Jimbo Fisher answered that question resoundingly so. And Jimbo Fisher gave this program one of the better teams to ever play college football. And Jimbo Fisher gave this program a level of credibility that it is still desperately leaning on to show that this is just not a Bobby Bowden trick here that can be played. Um, Jimbo Fisher did, in many ways, an exceptional job here, and that's kind of what makes this story as complex uh, as it is. So I, I don't want this to just sound like I'm sitting here uh, bashing Jimbo Fisher all the time, but also there's some stuff, you know, there's some stuff in here that's just laughable. You can't tell me that Jimbo Fisher wanted to be Bobby Bowden 2.0 and you sure as hell can't tell me that Jimbo Fisher didn't stop recruiting in 2017 and you can't tell me that he planned to be there for forever <laughs> and with a guy like Jimbo who every head coach values recruiting every every coach thinks that recruiting is the lifeblood of the program Jimbo Fisher believes it more Jimbo F Fisher believes it at a deeper level you can't tell me that somebody that put that much institutional focus and concern with recruiting on who stopped recruiting for four months had plans on being at Florida State for a long time. It's just those two don't pair with each other. Uh, they, they don't. I mean, for some of y'all, this will be old news, and if you want to you know, click forward for five minutes because you know that Jimbo Fisher stopped recruiting, I welcome you to do so. As I'm fond to do, I'll tell a, I'll make a reference point to an older recruiting story, and that is the year's 1999. And there's a kid out, excuse me, the year's not 1999, the year's 1996. And there's a kid in Texas named David Warren. David Warren is um, 
as well-known of an entity in Texas high school football as there had ever been at that time. Uh, many considered him uh, to be like the best sophomore to ever play high school football in Texas. Uh, there's school <laughs> football games is a game between John Tyler and Plano East uh, that you can still find on YouTube. It's not necessarily tied to Warren. It is hilarious. It's a um, you know comeback uh for the ages, the high school announcers are in full-blown, you know, high school announcer caricature mode. Uh, sounds like something out of Varsity Blues. It's hilarious. Go watch it if you're not otherwise familiar with it. Uh, but David Warren, he's from Tyler, Texas. It's long since assumed he's going to go to Texas. Uh, he calls Florida State, like, at the two weeks before signing day, lets him know that... Um, that he still has an official visit, and he asks if if Florida State's interested in him using uh, his his fifth and and final official on a trip to Florida State. Well, hell yeah, they were. He came, ultimately signed with Florida State. Sometimes you get real lucky like that in recruiting. Uh, David Warren was like the defensive player of the year. Uh, I think he was the national lineman of the year in high school. I mean, he was a massive recruit, and it kind of fell in uh, to Florida State's hands. That was the same year that like in that regular season 96 game where Florida State won 24-21. That's like the best defensive performance you're ever going to see. That was incredible. For a high school recruit, it was intoxicating. Uh, Warren said he watched the game and knew he wanted to play defense at Florida State. So only, you know, roll back the years uh, or the clock on these recruiting stories because I will tell you in 2017, there were similar things happening. There were some of the more elite prospects in the country reaching out to Florida State asking if they had interest or still had interest. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily like fair of me to produce these. I could just tell you all as a listener base, I've seen this with my own eyes. I've seen screenshots of this. I'm not just making stuff up here. Um, I can further tell you that I had a contact on uh, the Georgia uh, or one of these seven-on-seven teams that many of the prospects in the 2017 class were from. And it was, I mean, there's no debate, there's no conversation as to whether Florida State stopped recruiting. Um, and I, there's people out there who I respect who have told me, well, they, they might have really realigned their board that year as to what they were looking for. Um, um, <laughs> um, Florida State had one of the better linebackers in the country set to record a commitment video for them and stopped calling him. Okay. Florida State had there's there's like unicorns out there when it comes to rare things. Florida State had a five star or would be five star offensive tackle commit to them when Rick Trickett was the coach. Okay, there's unicorns, and then there's unicorns whose half sister happened to be a mermaid, and that's what that is when it comes to likelihood of things happening. Okay, that never happened. They didn't really recruit that kid till the end. One of the best quarterback prospects in the country stopped hearing from Florida State that year. A kid who I will go to my grave saying that with any kind of modicum of effort, they would have signed. It's not even debatable as to whether or not Jimbo Fisher stopped recruiting. And I will be critical of the article of that. To say that, oh, well, boosters contend this, but sources say that they were meeting for two and a half hours a day. Eh, no. No, man. I mean, that's that just... There's there's people that have said that publicly uh, when it comes to perspective of players, parents. It's not debatable. It is a cardinal sin. It is perhaps the biggest cardinal sin in that industry. You will have a hell of a per time 
having any person tell you that on the record or off if they were a member of that staff that they stopped recruiting. But the the results speak for themselves. And it's not, again, it's not something that I'll really entertain as debatable at this point. So maybe I took too long on that. Whatever. Um, oh, God, I just spilled my scotch. Um, amateur hour. All right. And just another thing I'll give for perspective as to read an article. Like as far as the Jimbo's relationship with boosters, with individual boosters, I'm not speaking about Seminole Boosters, the organization. Uh, you know, Jimbo could be fairly personal. And, uh, you know, Jimbo has Jimbo certainly has a human side. There's uh, stories that I've heard as far as Jimbo still having a relationship with people that he's not dependent upon money nor seeking money from. He's gone out of his way to acknowledge uh, important events in people's lives uh, to which he does not have to call or ask for money. So I, I do want to point that out. This guy's not just some, you know, super transactional robot or something like that. Uh, and Jimbo certainly developed some fairly deep relationships with, with Florida State boosters. The problem is, is that, one, there's only so many. And two, like Jimbo, with the exception of the IPF, Jimbo never had a singular focus as to what he really wanted. Now, once the IPF uh, was taken care of, and I'm not even sure Jimbo was really involved in necessarily some of the fundraising for that, but it was just so obvious when he first got here that that's, uh, you know, that that was what needed to transpire. But after that, I remember speaking to three different people that I would classify as mega boosters for Florida State. You know, people who had spent time in a duck blind or uh, a deer stand with Jimbo, people that had listened to him and his plan for the future. I talked to three different guys at the end of 2014, and three different people gave me a different idea as to what they thought Florida State's biggest priority was from from a next step standpoint. You know, the same thing that made Jimbo Fisher a great recruiter is that he could sit down there in your living room and tell you 10 different ways that he was going to be, that you were going to be successful and you were going to prosper under him. And maybe only three or four of them were what you were really looking for. But you heard those things and you were further, you know, bully, um, you were further buoyed by the idea that this guy had belief in you and you were going to be successful and you were going to go to the league and contend for championships and maybe win personal awards along the way. That's kind of the same manner that Jimbo spoke to boosters. Like, you know, we just don't want to do this project. We want to do project A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And when boosters are sitting there listening to that conversation, particularly the boosters that get leaned on pretty heavily to make projects of significance happen, I mean, they're hearing hearing a cash register go off in their mind for everything that they hear. And uh, there was at some point in time, in my opinion, by some more boosters of significance uh, to not necessarily... Nobody thwarted Jimbo. Nobody ever put a roadblock in front of him. But people wanted there to be more formality on discussions before they started to place focus on it. Um, They would want to... For for example, they they did want to start meeting with architects before they just... Jimbo kind of scattershotted all the things that he wanted... Uh, because you didn't really know what was a priority at that point. You didn't know what you needed to do first. Um, 
And that's not necessarily a fault. That's just kind of a, that is who Jimbo is. And he was hard to get uh, a clear idea as to next steps, priority of next steps, and consistency of next steps. When you're working with limited resources, not having those things makes what is a challenge an even harder challenge. Obviously, um, you know, the passing of Monk Bonasort, I thought uh, Adelson and Hale did a really good job of capturing that, both in a manner that uh, domestic and, you know, domestic uh, readers, those who are most familiar with the program, could understand and appreciate and also uh, give Monk and a level of importance that those who weren't familiar with the story uh, could see how impactful that was and, and how detrimental that was to the cause and to the idea that ultimately, um, you know, you'd be able to keep him on board. I also want to say that I think Jimbo Fisher had a little bit of a hard time with boosters because of his own perspective on money. This may sound silly, but man, once Jimbo Fisher made him enough money to know that he had made enough money, Jimbo Fisher stopped caring about money. Jimbo Fisher was not necessarily a person that was motivated to see a checking account that had $7 million in it turn into, or not a checking account. You know, if you're keeping $7 million in a checking account, I hope you're worth like $200 million. Um, you know, to see your to see your net worth grow from seven million to twenty seven million or something like that. Um, you know, Jimbo Fisher valued money as let me have enough money to go hunt, to keep the lights on, uh, to try to keep everybody in my family happy. It wasn't necessarily. I mean, you know, Jimbo Fisher drives a truck. Jimbo Fisher, uh, <laughs> with the exception of that brown jacket that he used to wear on the recruiting trail uh, that was so successful. I mean. You know, you never, <laughs> you never looked at Jimbo Fisher and thought that this was a guy who spent, um, you know, two hours on uh, in in London or, or New York getting suited for um, suits or, or high end wear or whatever else. It's just a different guy, and I think sometimes he was frustrated that other people weren't willing to part with money uh, as quickly as, as something that maybe he didn't uh, put as as high of a priority on uh, from his own perspective. So. Um, final comment that is kind of, you know, jumbo specific here. Well, let me, let me talk about one other thing here too. Okay. So the facilities conversation, like, you know, obviously Florida state needed to upgrade its facilities, still needs to upgrade its facilities and, and is in a, a chase with people. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about a second ago as far as to priority and prioritizing next steps and seeing what you need to have, you know, what you want to have. And then at the end, what are you using as an excuse? I mean, I'm sorry, but the idea that Florida State needed some shiny new academic facility to not be last in the APR is hilarious. I mean, you don't need that. Maybe you do if you want to be first. And you're at a place like Florida State. You need a $10 million, you know, standalone project uh, that, you know, shuttles in all these unique avenues of learning and blah, blah, blah. Come on. To not be last in APR? That's not a facilities problem. That's not something you're going to spin your way out of. 
that's a total loss of the locker room and a lack of, uh, you know, a lack of institutional control from the perspective of just doing enough to make it look like we have a baseline concern for academics. Didn't exist during the final couple of years. And that's not something you can spin your way out of. And that sure as hell isn't solved by pouring a bunch of money into some uh, unique facility. That's a that's laughable. So there's uh you know, there's things from the Fisher perspective that I certainly give credence to, um, and I can understand the frustrations. There's also things that no man, that just doesn't just just doesn't check out. Um, finally, it is very much of my opinion that you know what happened uh, in Jimbo's life off the field was going to make it exceptionally hard for him to stay in Tallahassee. You know, the term public divorce is, is used in here, and there's stuff that pu- that's public and uh, tied to that, and there's some stuff that's not public. Um, and there's stuff that, you know, when you're in a small town in a small community like Tallahassee, there's, there's whispers. And Jimbo Fisher heard those whispers. And Jimbo Fisher is a guy with a massive ego, and, and look, you got to have that to be successful. There's, there's 10,000 people out there that want to be college football coaches and want to be successful. You got to think you're special. You got to think you're the greatest thing going to be, you know, one of the five to eight to ultimately land one of these jobs that has a realistic path to the national championship. So, but that same set, that same ego, that same belief was just had to suffer, you know, what could be a kind of publicly humiliating situation. I will say this, and I will give credit to Adelson and Hale here because they crystallized this at a level that I'm not sure anybody else has has brought as much clarity to it. And that is, if there's anything that could have happened to kind of weave these two parties together in an inseparable manner. I do think it was the challenge that Jimbo faced with his son and the resulting foundation and kids first. Florida State missed something there. That, you know, if uh, Florida State, that could have been the thing that could have given at least an opportunity for a bond to exist that could have sustained some of the other things that I've talked about and it didn't happen and I specifically remember um, the first time that I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the coaching industry and he was telling me that there's real legitimacy to this Texas A&M thing and I think this was uh, I think this was early in October I can't remember exactly but I I remember it because he he said Graham they can raise more money in three days at Texas A&M for kids first than Jimbo and Candy could for 30 years in Tallahassee. And I, I remember kind of audibly swallowing, and I realized that that's an avenue that's different and has a different perspective for Fisher. And it was an avenue that Florida State, you know, there was certainly some support there, and I'm not saying it was ignored, but it was not embraced from an institutional perspective. And if there was anything that could have withstood some of the frayed relationships, some of the situations off the field, the loss of a confidant, it was if there had been some kind of real marriage of the two parties with full support of Kids First and, um, 
and that didn't happen. And I remember uh, that day, and I'm not saying that Bud and I had ignored it, Bud uh, is incredibly well-sourced, and we had been talking about this uh, idea of, of Texas A&M from, from what I believe was late September. But I remember I talked to him after that, and we both realized, like, yeah, this is a there's a there's a different level here, and there's something that's uh, has the potential of being played that is a very different card. So uh, that's kind of kind of all I have to say about the Jimbo aspect of the article. I'll just say these two other you know two other main parties involved, and not near be nearly as as long winded as I was about the old man Jim Bob. Um. Like, Stan Wilcox, in my opinion, was an underwhelming hire and was limited, okay? Particularly from a fundraising situation. Uh, He certainly had some success. I believe he is owed some credit in the basketball level of success. I don't... I think other people give him more than maybe he should, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not going to tell you I'm familiar with the inner workings of the basketball program and the levels of support as maybe I am in football, but um, I'm hesitant to say that, you know, that the basketball program wouldn't have had the success that they did if Stan Wilcox had never come. I will acknowledge that he acted as an accelerant for it, and he had belief in the program uh, at a level that previous ADs hadn't. So I'm not trying to completely dismiss him on that, but uh, there's some narrative that I hear sometimes that I, my, me personally, I give some pushback on. I also, um, (laughs) you know, like I think, Stan, the term that I was given during the actual courtship of Willie is that Stan, like they (laughs) kind of, like when everybody else stayed up and had these conversations long into the night that they kind of, I'm not saying they sent Stan to bed, but like during the real meat and potatoes of trying to figure out if Willie Taggart was going to be your your next head coach, Stan Wilcox wasn't maybe as involved as what you would get from the perception of that article. Just my opinion, just what I've been told. Um, I give credit to to Hale and Adelson. Hale, like David Hale, is a, a thousand times better writer than I could ever dream of being. Andrea Adelson is incredibly well sourced uh, throughout the uh, broader perspective of of Southern college football. I have respect for both of them. Um, I don't, you know, I don't. I'm not trying to start a fight here. There's just some things that I disagree with, and at the same time, it's impossible to write an article like this and not have aspects that people uh, would would disagree with. So, uh, want to be fair. Um, you needed, like in Wilcox, <sighs> the reason why I had some of this. If I were to write a book about this. Um, I would start somewhere in 10, 11, or 12, because it kind of does start there, in my opinion. You needed a big personality as an athletic director when you knew kind of what you were going to have with Jimbo, particularly as and if he experienced success. Um, Eric Barron was really like one of the only people who kind of reminded Jimbo of the, the, the natural flow of things. And uh, that he was the president of the college and Jimbo was the college football coach. And when Eric Barron leaves for Penn State, 
uh, that, in my opinion, is kind of where a lot of this begins. Uh, and you can think that Baron did a really good job uh, as a whole, and it is my opinion that he did. Uh, you can also kind of be critical of the idea that he hired a athletic director that didn't have the skill set uh, to give the necessary pushback or guidance to a football coach that you knew was going to be a proverbial line stepper, uh, to, to quote the great Dave Chappelle. So, yeah, that's kind of where I am with, uh, with the Wilcox angle. And at the same time, before I transition to Willie, um, it's fair to say that, like, Barron put kind of, I don't know if the terms put Jumbo in his place, but had a, a good idea as to where <laughs> and how things should work, that that's before Jumbo Fisher wins a national championship. I'm not sure uh, Jimbo Fisher listens to Eric Barron at all if it's uh, 2014 and he's won 29 games in a row. Just want to say that. So, we will close with uh, with one Willie Taggart here. So, um, this will just be real brief. I just will say that, man, I think if... I think even with maybe some perspective as to what it means to sign a class in the early signing day period or the early signing period, that maybe that would have been a real good thing for for Willie in year one. Maybe the idea that you could get a staff together immediately, save this class, grab a couple new kids, and have this class be a launching point for you. I, I think kind of the rush... You know, the, the two parties, as far as Florida State and Willie, were, were like two parties that are just way too eager to jump into bed with each other. And then, you know, when they do, realize there's all kinds of problems that come from it. Um, to an extent, that process kind of repeated itself as Willie put his first staff together. Uh, there were people, and this is not a look-at-me moment, there's people that were contacting Bud and I, who I believe were qualified candidates. Would have I don't know that they should have gotten a job, but they would have been worth giving a look to. Um, like on the day that David Kelly gets named as the wide receiver coach, um, on the, on the day that he adds a couple other people, uh, to a staff that in retrospect weren't necessarily the, the best of odds, uh, best of ads. Um, I'm not taking a shot at David Kelly when I say that, but, um, I think he probably is better used in a college football program and can be a better asset in a college football program, uh, where he's not an everyday position coach. I just think there was such a rush uh, to get into this job and uh, that once you did get into this job that all these other kind of peripheral issues were going to resolve themselves and ultimately this was just going to be a rocket ship that, you know, Willie held on too tight and, and uh, we just rode to, the <laughs> rode to the moon with all this recruiting success and, you know, the fact that there was a coach there that wanted to be there and, you know, had a... Uh, 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 some level of genuine um, want to be at Florida State and saw that as his dream job. Uh, that just kind of put to a, a place where everybody had to act in a manner that was so fast uh, that it didn't really do anybody any problem or any anybody any favors. Um, you know, would, would Willie have ever been a great fit at Florida State in perspective? I have my doubts. I will say that I think 
Willie would have been well served to have been at Oregon for two to three or four years and then come to Florida State. He needed, you know, some maturing in bigger level college football before finding himself in that job. Um, you know, maybe some levels of, of personal maturation uh, would have helped him before getting thrown into. It's not the brightest spotlight in college football, but it's a big damn job. It's a big damn job to be the Florida State coach. And everything you do is, you know, under a microscope that he was unfamiliar with and, and really not ready for. Um, I'll f- finally say this. There are some things that in retrospect, when I look at Willie, uh, that I, I have some empathy for him with. And I, I think he was, you know, it's naive to think that race didn't play a role in, um, in the erosion of his support, uh, whether it be race, whether it be, you know, the fact that he was a guy who was following a college football legend and he was another guy who had won 29 games in a row that it was always going to be a hell of a hard situation for him to be in. And, but, you know, when I look back on it, if a, if a school brings in, uh, like a, a guy who they're sure, who they're fully committed to, and they know that, you know, there's going to be some, some moments that are rough and, you know, they know there's going to be, you know, you go through kind of the process of making sausage. There's, there's things that you're going to want people not to find out about, uh, but you're here, you're committed, that's going to be your coach. If that's really your belief, then, and I'm not saying these comments weren't dumb, they were very dumb, but I don't know that you roll your head coach out there and make him apologize for his hydration comments. I, I'm not saying they weren't stupid, I'm not saying they weren't misguided, but if you're really fully committed to a guy, eh, do you do that? I'm not sure. If you go out and hire Jim Harbaugh four years ago, are you telling Jim Harbaugh to, to apologize for some hydration comments after a game? I don't think so. And if uh, if it's true that the boosters got their feathers ruffled or whatever the phrase was by Willie saying that Florida State could no longer afford to band-aid anything anymore, eh, man, you gotta look you gotta look yourself in the mirror if that's something that really bothers you. I mean, that's that's the absolute truth. That's the absolute truth. And if that really bothered people, then, hmm, okay. Uh, That's tough. That's a tough place for Willie to be in. So I'll also say this, and it's not necessarily tied to Willie, but whoever was making the comments about Willie Taggart's time in Tallahassee was a hell of a lot more honest and a hell of a lot more accurate (laughs) than whoever they got to comment on the Fisher side of things. I mean, there's stuff in there from... The Fisher perspective that is just kind of fanciful fiction, in my opinion. And uh, you certainly have to write that article with somebody representing Jimbo Fisher, whoever that might have been. But, uh, whew, boy, there's some there's some whoppers in there that just don't pair with the reality of the situation. And there's some revisionist history. Uh, you know, Jimbo was, like I said earlier, was scattershot as hell when it came to his wants and you know, would fire 50 different things at you at a time. But the idea that Jimbo Fisher was pressing for a football-only facility in 2013, no, 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 no. The idea, I already went into recruiting, two-and-a-half-hour staff meetings, mm, skeptical. Um, there's just some things in there. The idea that they weren't successful because Jimbo had to step over a kid in the hall, one, skeptical of that, two, <clears throat> okay. Um, the idea that, there was this there, there was this dinner 
uh, to where Jimbo Fisher wanted a blank check for staff a week before he left for A&M and that that could have changed things? No. No, no, no. Jimbo Fisher and John Thrasher could have gotten in a private jet, flown to New York, and been running through Manhattan singing songs from Hamilton for the night, had the best night of their lives, and that wasn't going to save that relationship, and that wasn't going to keep Jimbo in Tallahassee. What I'm trying to say is, if you're telling me any course of action is taking place a week before he leaves, or less than a week before he leaves, um, and certainly a guy who had never fired staff before, really meaningful staff, uh, is going to the president and asking for a blank check to basically wipe out his staff. No, I'm real skeptical. Real skeptical that that took place. Greg Hudson basically fired himself. Jimbo never really fired anybody else. Jimbo, the closest, and I don't even want to say closest, but Jimbo, the way that the Brandon Jenkins info was dispersed was about the angriest that I ever saw or ever heard of Jimbo getting with someone. But Jimbo wasn't going to fire his whole staff, and there was nothing that was going to happen five hours or five days before he left uh, that was going to be resolved at some meeting uh, between him and any other party. So that is my reaction to the article. It's a very 2020 thing for an article to be written on Thursday. (laughs) And by Saturday night, it feels like it took place two and a half weeks ago. So, uh, you know, if you didn't want to listen to it or uh, if that's dated news for you, uh, I guess you're probably not listening to this now, and I certainly understand. So if you did, I certainly appreciate it. Hope you can take something from the conversation. And uh, But now I'll be back on Monday to jump back into more traditional pods. So uh, this has been enjoyable for me. Talk to you soon, guys. Thank you for your support. Go Knowles.